five listeners, friends, enemies, gather around. It's time for Perhaps It's You. We're one of many Unsolved Mysteries rewatch podcasts watching the original Robert Stack episodes of Unsolved Mysteries. But I know that we're your favorite Unsolved Mysteries rewatch podcast. We're probably also the only deadly Unsolved Mysteries rewatch podcast. Yeah. How many of those podcasts have the power to kill? I'm guessing just this one. I'm guessing. You know, it's funny. Our our intro where we often say hello, friends and enemies previously always seemed a little weird because why would your enemies be listening? Oh, I knew they were. I knew they were listening. I knew they were listening this whole time. But after that that one star review we talked about in our last episode, apparently our enemies are listening. They're out there. And I greet them anyway. And yet they meet that greeting with nothing but disdain. Here I've welcomed them. And I get told that my voice makes them want to die. Please. I mean, rude. a download's a download, but that one, those one-star reviews are not appreciated. <laughs> also against no. the rules. Against the rules. We only accept five-star reviews. However, that review has led me to perhaps my true love, which is taking pre-Raphaelite paintings of beautiful women leading men to their watery graves and turning them into memes about my voice. <laughs> How many I, have you made so far? I don't know. I cannot stop. The number's going to be higher by the time you are listening to this. I literally was making one right now. I was like, Liz, it's time to record. You need to stop making memes and actually record the podcast the memes are about. (laughs) Fortunately for me, there's a lot of paintings of the subject matter. So, I mean. There's no end in sight. Yeah, exactly. I could make so many painting, painting inspired memes of. Poor, innocent men that go from, I don't know, listening to Joe Rogan to saying, I think I'm going to try something new today. Maybe, oh, remember that show Unsolved Mysteries? That was pretty good. Maybe I'll listen to a podcast about that. Oh, oh my God. Oh, my God. No. It's women and they're talking. (laughs) I wish I wish I was dead. Uh, Yeah. I mean, I, I feel very powerful. Oh, absolutely. I feel, I don't, it just seems fitting. It's like, yeah, I I do, I do deserve to have this kind of power to lure men to their watery graves. We're recording this episode on Valentine's Day, which is hilarious, but this is how we've opened the, <laughs> the episode. Oh yeah, happy. But also happy, fitting, fitting happy for our brand. Belated Valentine's Day, everyone. Yes. I have come to really love Valentine's Day after years of, you know, being angsty and thinking it was not for me, but I mean, it's chocolate and hearts and pink. So I should have known that deep down, I actually love it. I I like the Valentine's Day aesthetic. I agree. And you can do whatever you want. That's That's the trick of any holiday. I I ordered myself the fancy chocolates I wanted, and I'm not disappointed. They're delicious. (laughs) (laughs) They're so good. Hmm. Yes. Uh, Happy belated Valentine's Day to actually only our friends in this case. Enemies, fuck off. Whatever. (laughs) I don't need to greet you. Uh, Do we have any other updates? Uh, No. Yeah, I feel I like so. no. 
I was going to say, we probably should have addressed this in, like, some more official capacity, but over the summer, we were talking about how the Minneapolis City Council had pledged to defund the police. Mm -hmm. So I'm just going to give a quick update that that's clearly not going to happen. I probably shouldn't have acted like that, that because they said they were going to do that, that was going to happen, because, yeah, that's not going to happen. So that's... yeah. I was maybe a little bit naive, but I mean, I think a lot of people felt hopeful. I mean, people did burn down a police station. So it's not like it wasn't a moment that called for change. It's just that once it got cold and everyone had to go back inside, clearly time to be like, yeah, we're we're really not going to do that. It's uh, I I feel like I expect so little, and yet I'm still so disappointed. I feel like my expectations low, and yet here I am, fucking disappointed yet again. The entire world protested for the death of George Floyd. The entire world, and what is going to come of that? Minneapolis Police Department and City Council. Oh, nothing? Oh, hmm. Interesting. Bold choice, really. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I don't know. I don't really have anything profound to say about that except that it sucks. Yeah. I mean, do we have to burn down more police departments? I don't know. I don't know. I saw someone on Twitter, and God, I hope this is true, saying that their French boyfriend was watching TV a little while ago, and he was like, the situation here is terrible. Why is no one burning stuff down? <laughs> and you just have to be like, French guy, I don't know. Good question. <laughs> we Look, we tried that. We tried Surprisingly, that. the answer hasn't been burned down more shit. But, you know, yeah. maybe we're getting closer. I mean, maybe the, the warmer weather. I was I mean, going right to say, it now. is too cold right now. I mean, I think a police station on fire would warm a lot of people up. <laughs> Right now, it's currently negative twenty outside, but yeah, uh, yeah, it's like comically cold. If you have not lived somewhere that can get to negative twenty degrees Fahrenheit, I mean, it's something. Apparently, the, I got this information from my mom. I'm assuming it's credible. With the wind chill, it was apparently negative. It felt like negative forty five this morning. <laughs> what does that even mean? like? I, I can't even process that. No- like, what does that even mean? Honestly, I don't know. Because just your, it's just your, really cold. Your face just falls off. Yeah. The wind touches it, and you go, "Oh, I don't have a face anymore." <laughs> yeah, yeah, I don't, I don't know. It's, I mean, I'm, I'm, I have to put some stuff in the mail. I was like, I'm not going outside, but I do have to find a mailbox. <laughs> well, I might lose some fingers and some toes. Yeah, that'll be fun. Um, yeah, I don't know. We'll see. We'll see what happens. I'm sorry for implying that things might actually get better. Don't worry. There won't be much of this on that on this podcast. <laughs> I don't make that mistake often. So, yeah. Yeah. And I think this episode of Unsolved Mysteries, if you look, if you're in a dark mood right now, sorry. It's not going to get better. Yeah, I mean, go find your, like emo outfit that's been in the back of the closet for the past 15 years because it's time <laughs> it's time for some fingerless gloves and and uh i don't know i was i missed that thing but put on a bunch of eyeliner get ready 
yeah, to be very sad. <laughs> <laughs> I hope you're ready to be bummed out, I say once again. Yeah. We are on season six, episode eight yes. of Unsolved Mysteries. You can find that on the old YouTubes. I would not recommend watching it on, say, Amazon Prime. Not unless you love ads. (laughs) Yeah, not only because Jeff Bezos can suck my dick, but because they decided, you know what this show needs? 10 billion ads. Why? We already, you already have more money than God. We already paid to watch this because we pay for Prime Video. Now (laughs) I have to watch like 20 ads in one episode. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. How can, okay. How can greed just know no bounds like that? Like, how does that guy go, you know what I need? More money. Like, no, you don't. It's hard to fathom because no, you don't. once you have that much money, like, it's not like, that, at that point, getting more it does not affect you your life at all. You will not notice the difference. <laughs> no, you could lose not way more than half of that money. You could lose half, half of your money and not even notice. Yeah. It would, it would be make no material difference in your it life. I, it's something I can't even wrap my head around, honestly. I don't understand. I mean, I don't understand a lot of things about being rich, but I don't understand being rich and, like, being cheap. Like, if you're rich, don't you want to be, like, leaving cars for your waitresses like Elvis? Like, don't you want Don't you want to just be, like, sharing the wealth? Like, throw that around. Show off a little. You no. Nope. As a not rich person, I would think so. <laughs> you would think so, but no. Anyway, hoarding it, yeah, 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 yeah. I don't know how we get on that topic. Like, I feel like every episode we're like, you know, rich people just swimming around in their gold, like Scrooge McDuck. But <laughs> clearly, it's on my mind. But uh, Samantha has our first segment, which does take place in Minneapolis. Yeah, speaking of Minneapolis, this first mystery takes place here. This it was is- not negative twenty degrees the day of this mystery. Oh my god, could you imagine if it was? This guy would be dead. Um, Yeah, so this is a wanted, and it is about the kidnapping of John Grundhofer. Uh, I'm going to try to care about this. Okay, let's (laughs) talk. I literally wrote down, speaking of rich people, I wrote down, this guy deserves to be kidnapped. (laughs) It's one of my few notes. It goes, wanted, kidnapping, fat phobia, and then... This guy deserves to be kidnapped. Oh yeah, that was my first. So I wrote down what Robert, how Robert Stack opens this episode. It's not great. It's he not says, great. "Quote: The perpetrator was an overweight, middle-aged man who wore thick glasses and a floppy rain hat. Hardly the profile of a dangerous criminal." How do you End know quote. Robert Stack? How do you know what dangerous criminals are doing? These mysteries are unsolved. They could all be wearing floppy rain hats. You don't know, because you don't know who they are. Was the hat this guy was wearing a rain hat? I, I don't mean, know. Guess he... any, can any hat be a rain hat if you wear it in the rain? I don't understand. But I think this was more like a fedora. It it was like what Inspector Gadget wears. And I don't know what kind of hat that is. I think of a but... rain hat like a guard, like a kid's garden hat. That's what yeah, I was it's picturing. it's not like that. But that's Maybe not it's just guy... like... Made out of trench coat material? Do you think, look like it was. Do you think Robert Stead is just jealous that he doesn't have one? 
baby. I don't know why he described this as a rain hat. I can't say it's not a rain hat. Maybe he only wore it in the rain. <laughs> it wasn't raining when this happened. True. According to the reenactment, anyway. It was part of his disguise. You know how in, like, Marvel movies, they'll disguise, like, a very obvious superhero, like Captain America or whatever, by just putting a baseball hat on him? That's, like, <laughs> this guy. He, as soon as he put on that hat, no one recognized him. That's also on that show, You. When the when Joe, the stalker, is, like, stalking someone, he just puts on a baseball hat, which I understand, like, maybe people wouldn't, like, see him, but he acts like he is invisible. Like, literally, <laughs> like, no one would even see a person, much less recognize recognize him i was like i'm pretty sure you're still there you're just wearing a weird like who wears just a blank baseball hat with like no logo on it people you can't who can't be trusted it's, it's suspicious as hell <laughs> you're old that's only a disguise that's the only reason you would yeah, wear that yeah you go to the store and they're like can i interest you in one of these nfl logo hats as worn by rob Lowe?" and you go no no I don't watch that. I need a disguise hat. And they're like, oh, right this way. We have tons of just blank black baseball hats for this purpose. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, this guy, I don't know if this was, he was dangerous. I mean, he claimed to have a bomb. We'll get there. But he was definitely a criminal. So I don't know what you're talking about, Robert Stack. <laughs> anyway. Uh, so on November 19th, 1990, a wealthy business executive named John Grundhofer arrived at his offices at 810 a.m. in Minneapolis, Minnesota. This guy's claim to fame was he was brought in to like fire people like that George Clooney movie. Yes. And he he laid off 2000 people from this bank. Yeah. So so kind of when they were like, huh, how many enemies does this guy have? It was like, I don't know, at least 2000 <laughs> So I was like, yeah, he kind of deserves to get kidnapped. I yeah. was, he, he lives. He lives, everybody. Calm down. I think Robert Stack called him a hard-nosed businessman or something. Okay. You you ruined, like, 2,000 people's lives at this one place. Yeah. Yeah. Imagine, imagine when the cops are like, so do you have any enemies? And this guy's like, ooh, uh. Yeah, get out a notepad. <laughs> this is going to take a while. Also, that's so many are there any employees left at this bank? Yeah, for real. For it was Who called trimming the fire. He was called trimming the fat. Two thousand people got laid off. Good okay, grief! That's so many people. So, as he exited his car in the parking garage, a man calling himself Carl approached John and tried to abduct him at gunpoint. However, John tried to struggle with this person. Meanwhile, a witness named Jeff Rasmussen heard the commotion. And immediately thought that someone was being mugged. He ran over. Uh, this is so Minnesota of him, though. <laughs> he sees someone he thinks is being mugged in a parking garage and is like, whoa, maybe I can go help. It's maybe true. I. <laughs> it's true. He runs over. Run the other fucking way, guy. What are you doing? Well, he comes to his senses. It's This is almost a comedy, too. So they're, like, wrestling on the ground in this parking garage. This guy runs over, and they jump up and act like nothing is wrong. Yeah, because he's got a gun on his back. So then this guy is like, oh, maybe they're not being mugged. So he says, is somebody sick? Can I help? And that's just why I love this city so much, in a way, is it's just filled with, like, Puppy dialogued people wandering around going, Oh, can I help you? Are oh. you sick? Are you <laughs> sick? They look sick. They're clearly fighting. It's like, is everything okay? Yeah. 
Yeah, it is a very Minnesota thing to do. So it's really adorable. Carl like threatened him and said that he better get out of here, and that's when he was like, "Yeah, he some self preservation kicked in, and he ran off." Um, and he was like, "Well, that was just rude and uncalled for, and not very <laughs> not very neighborly at all." <laughs> So then at 8.13 a.m., the gunman ordered John back into his car and forced him to drive out of the garage towards Wisconsin. At this point, he, like, hooks a wire around his wrist and says that it's a that it's dynamite. In case he tries to, to pull anything, he's going to blow up. It looks so shitty in the reenactment, though. It looks like they put three cigars in a sandwich bag and just, like, tied that to some handcuffs and were like, watch out or you'll blow up. Yeah, I'm I'm skeptical. They never proved one way or another whether or not this guy actually had a bomb, but I'm kind of skeptical. So, I mean, it's not a, it's not a risk you want to take. You don't want to go, this isn't a bomb, and then it explodes, right? It's just... I mean, yeah, that's yeah. Just a, that's yeah. a smart thing to do. Don't take <laughs> chances. Someone says it's a bomb. Just believe them. Uh, it's clearly three cigars in a sandwich bag. <laughs> so I kind of w- so obviously each segment has a title. This is a wanted, but I sort of wish they had like witty titles. And this one was like Fumbles 2.0 or something. <laughs> because this, this guy is the, the fumbles of kidnapping. Yeah, because at this point... He's apparently dropped a note in the parking garage. They're halfway to Wisconsin when he realizes that he's left what Robert Stack describes as a cheat sheet <laughs> for the kidnapping in the in the parking. He had it like mapped out. I, I'm not exactly sure what it said, but it, it was something I'm sure it was something along the lines of like, OK, approach at gunpoint force in co- it was like a, a they literally <laughs> call it a cheat sheet for the kidnapping and it was it was not like i don't know it wasn't like minutia it wasn't details like use this you know exit or so it was literally like get gun kidnap guy put guy in car it was like i think you can remember that i would i would hope if you're gonna pull off a kidnapping i would hope you would remember the part that says kidnap I mean, and that's sort of what the FBI agents who are interviewed for the show say. They're kind of like, this guy was probably not a professional since he needed a cheat sheet <laughs> to remind him how to no. kidnap. I, I I guarantee he is a disgruntled, fired employee, not a like professional kidnapper, <laughs> if there is such a thing. I don't think professional kidnappers need cheat sheets. I've never kidnapped myself. I feel like if I was going to, maybe an outline would be helpful. I don't know. Where did you feel the need to deny that you've kidnapped someone? <laughs> a little suspicious, if you yeah, ask me. A kidnapper would say. It kind of is something a kidnapper would say. <laughs> so, a uh, passerby found this note in the parking garage. I can't imagine finding that note. Uh, oh my god, that that I would be so tempted not. First of all, I probably wouldn't give it to the police because I would think it was a fucking joke. But also, <laughs> you would I send would... it into that art project. What is that thing? What is that called where people find notes and they send it in? Oh yeah, yeah. I would, but I would want to like frame it. Like I would want a note that was like kidnap man <laughs> drive in Kulo. yeah drive man millions of dollars. <laughs> I would absolutely want that on my wall. I would be so sad to hand that over to the police. Like, can't you just make a copy? Can I have the original? Photocopy it. 
<laughs> so around 8.45, John and the gunman had crossed uh, into Wisconsin. The man asked him a few questions, which led John to believe that he had done research about his company. Or... <laughs> Yeah, or maybe he used to work there. Yeah. Just just a thought. Yeah. At 8.57 a.m., John was ordered to pull into a secluded rest area where the gunman told John that he wanted $3 million in ransom. So he called his secretary and told her of the gunman's demands. This, again, suggested that this was not a professional kidnapper because he asked for $1,000 bills, which the police or the FBI, whoever, I forget, whoever is interviewed for the show is like, <laughs> that's not something you could just like carry around. <laughs> so not sure that this guy is like totally thought this through. I didn't even know until you recently that they used to make thousand dollar bills, but it's, you know, from when wire transfers were less common. Yeah. But yeah, the idea of just like sticking that in your wallet. <laughs> A one piece of paper that's worth a thousand dollars. I don't know. He's like, what are you gonna do? Walk into a coffee shop and get change for a thousand dollar bill? <laughs> like, what is your plan here, guy? Anyway, <laughs> I mean, I yeah, I don't know. And who has thousand dollar bills? Like, are you? What are you gonna do? Walk into your bank? I think they're probably gonna know. They're gonna be kind of suspicious, probably. Yeah, it, it'd be better to get some smaller bills. DB Cooper knew. Yeah, yeah. So the employees at First National Bank began to prepare the ransom, but when the gunman realized that he had lost his cheat sheet, he became frustrated and then had John go down a hill into the woods. I don't know. He got flustered at this point. He didn't remember what he was going to do. <laughs> we all have those days that just don't go as planned. and It's unfortunate when that day coincides with the day you've planned to kidnap someone. I mean, I, we've all been there. We've all had to go into a meeting we weren't fully prepared for. You know, you didn't have an outline. You didn't have your bullet points, what you wanted to talk about. Had to wing it. Didn't go super great. I had a I dream really... last night that Samantha and I were in high school. And we had to give a presentation on the stock market crash, like, the next day. Actually, I think it was in two days, but for whatever reason, Samantha couldn't work on it the next day. So... And we had done, like, no research or anything, and we are just, like, scrambling to figure out what we were going to talk about in front of the class. And my big idea was to just, like, fill the room with ticker tape to distract <laughs> people from the idea that we didn't really know what we were talking about. <laughs> that sure... always is a good strategy to just distract the audience. I'm sure that has nothing to do with podcasting in any way. That's so funny. Yeah, but I can't even imagine if I had to get up in front of people and talk about the stock market. <laughs> That is not a dream. That is a nightmare. <laughs> I was like, okay, well, I can make some posters tomorrow, Samantha. Maybe I can find some pie charts. <laughs> oh, man. It was brutal. Goddamn. God Those are the worst dreams where you're back in high school. You have to take a <laughs> test. You, you skipped the whole semester for some reason, and then you have to yes. come in for the final test. I have those dreams all the time. They're the worst. <laughs> I always, for some reason, have not been going to history class. I don't know okay. why that class, but then I'll be like, wait, I have history this semester <laughs> and it just yeah, turns out I I haven't been going somehow. And then it's like, oh, fuck, I got to take that test tomorrow. And I have not gone to one class. I have that same dream, but it's math. It should for me. It should be math because I did not learn any math. No. But for some reason, it's history. I don't okay. I don't know. I don't know. Is it because it turned out one of our high school history teachers was sleeping with a student? Mm. And that's just like burned in my brain forever. 
I don't know. Was my high school possibly actually on television and not real? <laughs> yes. Sometimes Very I yeah. wonder. Sometimes I wonder. The way that that came. Yeah. I was telling Samantha some stories the other day about my town, and I realized that I sound like my mom, where my mom will be telling a story, and then she'll be like, and that's when we woke up on scorpions. And you're like, what? (laughs) Where did that come from? Where I was just like, and then this happened. And she was like, sure, Liz. But, uh, yeah, one of the high school uh, history teachers was, was dating a student. I believe she was a cheerleader. Dating. Dating. Uh, I believe she was a cheerleader, and this came to light because the cheerleaders were over at someone's house, you know, I don't know, doing whatever cheerleaders do, and one of them was talking to the mom that lived at the house they were at, and they were like, oh, you know how uh, so-and-so is dating Mr. History Teacher? (laughs) And just, like, thinking that was common knowledge, I guess, and the mom was like, I'm sorry, what? (laughs) Yeah. It's a very, very TV moment. Was it a big scandal? It was a it was a hush hush scandal. Okay. A bigger scandal was one of my middle school gym teachers. I don't like Mr. where this is going. Mr. Pomeroy, wherever you are, fuck you. That guy was abusing a student. Ugh. Ugh. And I will say his name because he was convicted of that, so okay. fuck him forever. God damn. Wow, that was a real tangent. Uh <laughs> Back to uh, <laughs> back to Carl now the, now this, this, Jr. <laughs> this kidnapping will seem very lighthearted compared to stories of my middle school gym class. It is in a way. I mean, this guy never. Spoiler alert: This guy never got his money, and I don't know. I mean, this is a crime to kidnap someone, but I kind of don't care. I don't know. Yeah, no, don't care at all. So this is this is called reaping what you sow. <laughs> So the kidnapper is flustered at this point because he lost his cheat sheet. So he just forces him to go into the woods. Uh, at this point, they they come upon uh, he must have placed this ahead of time. It's like a garbage bag with a sleeping bag inside of it, just in the middle of the woods. He removes the I'm doing scarecrow. It's the dynamite. Uh, he tied up John, put duct tape on his mouth, and like forced him into the sleeping bag. Then he fucks off. He leaves. I'm not really sure what the plan was. I don't even know like how he was expecting to get the money, but whatever. Yeah, that's a great question. They never say in the episode how he was like to get this money. I think maybe he just panicked and left. I really don't know. But uh, I guess he could have called back, called the secretary. I don't know. Anyway, I don't know what his plan was. Seems like maybe he didn't have a plan at this point because he lost his cheat sheet. Yeah, he had a plan. He just didn't know what it was. So, so he was like, I gotta go. Bye. But So he left and John spends about 20 minutes trying to free himself. Around 10.30 a.m. he calls his office from a nearby farmhouse um, and told them to, to not pay out the ransom. Uh, the kidnapping made national and the FBI set up a hotline. A man named John Henderson, this is unfortunate. John Henderson, this guy was identified by several people as the kidnapper after seeing the composite sketch. He just looked like this guy. Which is unfortunate. He goes side by side and I guess it's he kind of resembles him but I think lots of people resemble this guy. I don't know. I would be insulted because that's an ugly drawing. It's not a good drawing, no. I really wrote down, wow, gross drawing. So if a bunch of people called in and were like, that's Liz right?" I would not be pleased. <laughs> you might be insulted by this. So this guy, Henderson, was a maintenance man and had absolutely no connection to John Grunthofer or his, his business, his bank whatsoever. 
And yeah, the search yeah, his house turned up it. nothing. There was literally no evidence other than the eyewitness. They put him in a lineup, and uh, John Grunhofter does identify him as the kidnapper. However, Jeff Rasmussen, the the witness from the the parking garage, does not. Um, so they continued to look for evidence, um, but a handwriting test did not match. They believed that Henderson's alibi was not super airtight. However, um, and they did do a grand jury investigation, but no charges were ever filed. So he just no had to go through this, this ordeal for nothing. I feel bad for this guy. Um, yeah, there was no evidence whatsoever. Just some no. random people who saw a sketch and thought he looked like him. I don't trust that guy picking him out of a lineup anyway. I almost wonder if he knows who it is. Maybe. It, he didn't want to say it, for whatever possible. reason. So um, there he was just point, like, oh, yeah, that's him. Yeah, no. Mm-mm. Yeah. So there was a $100,000 reward. Um they they still considered John Henderson a suspect, but there was they never pursued that, thank goodness. Um so the case was featured, I'm trying to see, I'm looking at the Unsolved Mysteries wiki now to see if Oh, interesting. So I don't know if this was mentioned in the episode. Two months before the kidnapping, John's daughter Karen survived being shot during the Henry's Pub hostage incident in Berkeley, Whoa. California. Oh, interesting. Tra- traumatic time for this family. That I sounds guess. unrelated, but. So the case is unsolved. John Henderson was later cleared as a suspect. The true kidnapper has never been identified. Interestingly, there has been some recent speculation that John Grunhofer actually staged his kidnapping in order to gain sympathy mm. from the public. But this theory has uh, not been confirmed. That would explain why he picked someone out of the lineup that didn't do it. Yeah, I guess I wouldn't put it past this guy. He seems like a dirtbag, so. Also, this kidnapper is so inept. Could anyone be that inept at kidnapping? That was my question. Like, it's not like Hmm. this plan that he did was so intricate that he needed, like, a cheat sheet. (laughs) It was just get him in a car, drive to Wisconsin. But it almost would make sense if he had staged it. Like, they just he just left him in the woods completely unharmed he was never in any real danger yeah he, i don't he just i don't get believe out of his that, restraints and go to a farmhouse i don't believe that bomb thing at all um it's possible it's definitely possible hmm. it's a twist i didn't see coming but okay i have an unexplained death for y'all and it is long and prepare sad. yourselves this is actually really fascinating it's a good case, but it's a sad case. It is introduced as a brutal double, double homicide, so you know what you're getting into. This it t- goes back to, I believe, 86. It takes place in Willow Creek, California, which is a small town population 1,000, about 250 miles north of San Francisco. Hans and Betty Hansen lived in kind of a remote area, um... This is going to be relevant later. So they live in a trailer, and then right next to their trailer is a shop for, like, logging supplies because they're in a logging area. And then they also have, like, a big warehouse where they store all the stuff that they sell. Can we clear up one thing? His name is Hans, right? Hans Hansen, yes. Because in the show... Robert Stack and everyone else keeps calling him Hans, which means his name would have been Hans Hansen, which I mean, maybe he's okay. I've never heard of the name Hans. Like (laughs) I've heard of the name Hans. His name is spelled like Hans. Okay. I keep calling him Hans. 
<laughs> I, I don't guess know why. we'll just see what comes out of my mouth, and that's what we're going to call him. Sure. Um. So they had four children, including two twins, Jill and Julie, who were known around town for being very compassionate and friendly, making this only sadder. Robert Stack says that life was close to perfect until November 14th, 1986. So that evening, the twins, age 16, went to bed in their bedroom. Their elder brother, Donnie, who was 21, was visiting from out of town and sleeping on the couch. At 3 a.m., Betty, who's the mom, awakes to the smell of smoke. At this point, Hans Hans opens the bedroom door and sees that the, the hallway, like the whole trailer, is already engulfed in fire. So he manages to grab a fire extinguisher and shoots it down the hall, but it doesn't put out the fire. The fire remains in like a strip because there's accelerant. So at that point, Hans calls out to his children. He doesn't get any response and he runs out of the house. In running out of the house, he accidentally kicks over an empty gas can. Hmm. Around the same time, Betty sees her son Donnie and it seems like he's yelling at someone to leave. Does like, this ever get, get out revisited? No. And I think it's because they only have like her kind of blurry eyewitness account because obviously she's just woken up, her house is burning down, right? Like I don't think she had like the best grasp of her surroundings. She's worried about her children, whatever. But she recalls seeing her son Donnie at possibly a window yelling at someone like go on get out of here i was really expecting this to come back up and it never does and it's very strange i think it's a very important piece of the puzzle um so at this point so she doesn't really think of anything of that because she's too much in a panic she runs to the store that's on their property to grab more fire extinguishers it is handy if your house is on fire that you have a store that sells fire extinguishers sure so um when she gets to the store, Donnie is already there. And Hans is getting a ladder, which he puts up to Julie and Jill's window from the outside so that they would be able to climb out. However, he doesn't get any response to them from calling. And at this point, the fire is like so large, it's not like he can go in. So fire trucks arrive about 15 minutes after the fire started. It's kind of a remote area. Um and at this point, after the fire trucks have arrived, a neighbor who's come to, like, see what's going on notices that there is a figure in the ditch across the street. This is Julie. Julie doesn't appear to be burned at all, but is holding her stomach where she has a serious wound. And at this point, Donnie is like, oh, yeah, I pulled her out of the fire. Which doesn't make a ton of sense because it no, hadn't, like... Because they, because they've been going like, oh no, Jill, Julie, we got to get them out, right? This whole time while they're waiting for the fire truck, and then as soon as someone sees Julie, Donnie goes, oh yeah, I rescued her. It's like you didn't mention that she's they. Robert Stack describes her as nearly dead when she's found. So it's like Donnie didn't think to mention to the first responders that <laughs> she was yeah, laying he- in a field across the street. If you pull her out, it's suspicious from the beginning. He doesn't tell the first responders, like, hey, you might want to go help my sister. She's nearly dead. He he also doesn't tell his parents that are worried about them, like, oh, Julie's alive. She's, She's just not hurt. in the burning trailer. At this point, yeah. completely engulfed in flames. 
Yeah, they're trying to get them out of the trailer. And he could have been like, oh, we only need to save Jill. I already saved Julie. And then his parents would go, oh, thank God Julie's okay, right? We can focus all our efforts on getting to Jill. Yeah. Yeah, but that doesn't happen. So Julie is is holding her stomach because she has a serious stomach wound. But at the time, nobody really goes, Donnie, that doesn't make any sense because they're too worried about getting Jill out of the fire. The emergency personnel assume that Julie's stomach wound is related to the fire, as you would. Perhaps something exploded, right? Like an aerosol exploded from the heat and, you know, she got shrapnel in her stomach or something. Yeah. But when she gets to the hospital, it turns out that it is actually a wound from a pl- point-blank shot from a 12-gauge shotgun. This this segment has some twists and turns. That is a real twist. So, unfortunately, once the fire department gets the fire out, like, there is basically nothing left of this home. And Jill's body is found in the burned remains. After her body is examined, we learn that she had also been shot. But because of her wound, was unable to escape the fire. It does make sense because, so while you're watching them respond to this this fire, it's, it appears that the girls made no effort whatsoever to escape. And you're like, why? Like, they just stayed in their rooms while it burned around them. And right. now we know because she was shot. And also their parents have been yeah, calling for them this whole time, you know, like, Jill, Julie, answer me. And they haven't said anything, which is odd. Even if they were trapped in a burning room, you might think they would yell, help me, or, you know, right. something. But they haven't heard a word from them. And it turns out, yeah, they were both shot. So authorities recover three shotgun shells and two gas cans and a second gas can for the, from the records. So, so there's the one that dad kicked over when he was leaving. They also find another one in the burned out home. Um, the family's business warehouse was untouched by the fire. The police search the warehouse and find a shotgun hidden behind some boxes. Ballistics testing proves that this is the weapon used to shoot Jill and Julie. The authorities don't tell the family they found the shotgun and they watch the warehouse. A couple days later, a prowler is caught by police breaking in. It's the son, Donnie. Mm. He says that he had come to feed the family dog. And yeah, the police in the go, middle of the night when the dog is not there and he knows right? that the dog is not there. Both him and the police know that a neighbor is watching the dog. The dog is not in the warehouse. I mean, maybe sometimes it was, but he knew it wasn't then. So anyway, the police immediately know that he's lying. Um, and they believe he was trying to get back into the warehouse to retrieve the shotgun. At this point, I drew a mustache. This is on Chief Investigator George Gatto. And you'll know exactly what it looks like from the name, which is, that's a cop, all right. <laughs> okay. At this point, Donnie is the prime suspect. We find out that Donnie borrowed the shotgun from a friend only three days earlier. He also admitted to keeping it in his car. They are able to track down the purchase of the ammo, which was the same day as the fire. It's very suspicious. He also purchased two containers of gasoline that day at the local gas station. You don't say. That's when I wrote down, this is starting to sound like solved mysteries to me. (laughs) Two weeks after the fire... 
Julie has recovered enough at the hospital to say what happened. At first, she remembers being shot, but not anything else. But after talking to her parents for a while, she remembers seeing Donnie's face in the flash of the shotgun. We hear from her doctor that was like, well, that's not what she told me. And I was like, like, she wouldn't remember stuff later? What kind of doctor are you? Yeah. She just went through a horrible ordeal. Also, maybe she didn't trust you. Yeah, maybe she didn't want to tell some rando, oh, uh, I think it was my brother. Yeah, maybe that's she was very, still processing that. Like, come on. That's a very traumatic thing to admit. But he's acting like this is evidence that she did, like, while having surgery didn't go, uh, excuse me, sir, sir, I, I think it was my brother. What? Anyway, that's apparently supposed to be evidence to me. Uh, so Donnie uh, willingly spoke with the police. He said that he panicked and he hid the gun because he didn't want people to think that he burned down the trailer. And people were like, why would that? We didn't even know anyone had been shot. That doesn't even make any sense. No. So also, he- <laughs> you know, when you're desperately trying to get your family out of a burning trailer and your first thought is to go to your car and hide a gun? Yeah, yeah. That's what when I'm worried about the safety of my loved ones, I'm always like, what evidence should I be hiding? <laughs> yeah. Um so at this point he's arrested and charged, which is very shocking to his parents at the time. Unfortunately, on December 19th, Julie suddenly dies in what Robert Stack calls a freak medical accident. Unfortunately, there was an air bubble in her blood tube that went to her heart. Ugh. Yeah, so this episode just kicks you while you're down, basically. Well, because if you recall, I had said that this was a double homicide and we had only had one dead victim. Yeah, well, Julie passes away, too. And uh, obviously this is horrible for her family, but Robert Stack wants to point out it's also horrible for the case. And you're like, who the fuck cares? Well, now her eyewitness statement can't be used in court that she saw Johnny's face in the shotgun blast. Um, By April of 1988, the trial begins and they were seeking the death penalty for this case. Despite all the evidence against Donnie, the defense argued that the their the defense's argument rested on the witness the witness statement of two neighbors. So these two neighbors lived across the street from the Hansons or nearby, and when they saw that the um, house was burning down, obviously they looked to see what was going on, and they supposedly saw two men leaving the home while it was on fire. So, the entire defense story rests on this idea that two men are seen leaving the trailer. It makes absolutely no sense. This is what the defense presented. So, two intruders approached the trailer at 3 a.m. One of them found Johnny's shotgun outside in his unlocked car. They decided to bring the shotgun with them. They also found two cans of gasoline. Because these intruders had brought literally nothing with them to commit crimes. It's convenient that Donnie just <laughs> provided them the murder weapon and the gasoline. That's very very convenient for the intruders. It just happened to be there. They then picked the lock and went inside the home. They very quietly, without waking anyone up, spread gasoline around. Julie, at some point, was awakened and walked in on one of the perpetrators standing on the couch above Donnie, who was sleeping. Mm-hmm. He shoots Don- she He 
shoots Julie, waking up Donnie. And that's why she would have seen his face, which I feel like is a very good explanation for that, except I thought that couldn't even be presented in court. So I don't know why they had to, like, come up with a reason for that. But anyway, at that point, Donnie rushes to her aid, pulling her out of the house, leaving her on the porch, where she eventually crawled to the ditch herself. Uh Why does the intruder not shoot Donnie? Good question Uh, that is also asked in the episode. Unknown. Unknown. Why does Donnie just leave his sister on the porch of a house that's burning that has two intruders inside? Also unknown. Okay. This theory um, also requires that not only does this man shoot Julie, but not Donnie for some reason, but that the other intruder or possibly that intruder waits until everyone is out of the house to shoot Jill which is why no one heard that shot. Mm-hmm. And then while sneaking out of the house, while everyone's running around trying to put out the fire, they put the gun back in the car so that Donnie can hide it in the warehouse. Uh-huh. And this doesn't explain why Donnie felt the need to hide the gun. No. I guess it, it makes might... no fucking sense. Yeah, I guess it... This did not happen. <laughs> This did not go down this way. I'm sorry. It just did not. I mean, I guess it technically explains all of the evidence, but it also Aliens came down and shot these two girls and then just beamed themselves away. That also technically explains the evidence. That doesn't mean it happened that way. You can explain it all kinds of ways. That doesn't mean it's plausible. What if an experimental octopus escaped from a nearby lab with one thing in mind, the need to kill. <laughs> that tire from that weird movie Rubber just rolls on through. <laughs> Technically explains it. Yeah, that would be hard to prove in court, right? Okay. Um, yeah, it is weird that these intruders came to the house without any gasoline if they wanted to burn it down. Why they wanted to burn it down is also unknown. Unlike that kidnapping guy, these people did not have 2,000 enemies. <laughs> these were, like, friendly people that ran a logging supply store. It seemed like everyone liked them. Yeah, the girls had no enemies. They literally seemed like the most popular girls in school. Like, there's... No, I don't understand. Why they would were, anyone do this? They were known for, like, including new people that moved into the air. Like, yeah. They... They're 16-year-old girls. (laughs) They seem extremely harmless. Um, So, but, however, Donnie is found not guilty. Okay. I I cannot fathom that a jury was presented with the evidence that he, he... he borrowed the gun three days before, bought the ammunition the day of, and then bought two, exactly two cans of gasoline. <laughs> I cannot fathom that a jury was presented this evidence and still, f- I, I don't understand. The only thing I can think of is that, do you think that in seeking the death penalty, that that is what hurt their case? I, I mean, you have to wonder. I, I mean, I'm against the death penalty. I wouldn't want him to be put to death for this. I do think that he's guilty. Yeah, that's what that was my thought as well. Is like, do you think that they that might have been an what an overreach or however you yeah. say that? Yeah. yeah, there's this phenomenon like I've heard it described in other like true crime things where like a jury can have this moral objection to 
the sentence and can even if they believe that the perpetrator is guilty they may still find them not guilty i forget there's a name for that phenomenon i forget what it what it's called but that was what i wondered here because i can't imagine anyone like who else would have done this (laughs) who else also they interview him for the show and he has absolutely no explanation he's like he's like why did i hide hide the shotgun that's a good question i guess i just didn't want anyone to think that i killed them but it's like but we didn't even know (laughs) (laughs) makes no sense um yeah i mean i think that's an interesting point the way unsolved mystery presents it is basically the defense came up with enough reasonable doubt that the jury was like well we don't know for sure and maybe they were more inclined to have reasonable doubt because they didn't want to put someone to death. If there was even the slimmest possibility that a monkey found the shotgun and <laughs> killed the twins and burned down the trailer, they didn't, you know, even if there was just even the wildest, most outlandish theory. Okay, before it's you hard to say what you would do. It's hard to say what you would do. I I wouldn't want to be on this jury having to decide if no, someone would go absolutely not. to be put to death. I don't want to be in that position, so it's hard to say. But People really think an owl was involved in that staircase murder. <laughs> so maybe, who's to say an owl didn't burn this place down and borrow Donnie's shotgun? <laughs> who's to say? Those owls are shifty. Yeah, but the thing is, though... Betty and Hans both believe it was Donnie. That at first, Betty says she was relieved when her son was found not guilty, and she took that to mean that her son was innocent. However, the more she thought about it, the more she realized that it was the only answer that made sense, particularly because of that thing Samantha mentioned that we don't hear anything more about. She sees him yelling to someone. So what the parents think is that he did it, but he didn't do it alone. So some of the things that might have been hard to explain how he was the killer would be easy to explain if there was someone to help him. Yeah. We just don't know who that is. Um, I was kind of like, but why, Donnie? But Hans, the father, says he actually thinks Donnie intended to kill the whole family and that he wanted the insurance money. Oh, okay. So that was my big question, too, was why the fuck? Yeah, but, yeah. I guess getting insurance money might might explain it. I mean, we hear from Donnie. He's in silhouette. They disguise his voice. Apparently, he's changed his name because of all the scrutiny from the trial. And he tells us that he loves his sisters and he has no idea who did it. And that he had everything to lose and nothing to gain. And I was sort of like, yeah, what did you have to gain? But... If even your dad is like, I think he just wanted money, which how much insurance money could these people possibly have had? These are just regular people. Yeah. I And also, like, uh, why not burn down the... I mean, I guess if their shop burns down, the parents are getting the money. Right. I don't know. Goddamn. How much money did you need, 21-year-old Donnie? Um, yeah, I don't know. There's no update. The case is not still being investigated. I don't know if it's officially closed, but basically everyone thinks it's Donnie, including his own parents. Um, so they're not really looking into anyone else. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, he was not found guilty in court. So that's where that ends. It is a case that has some twists. So it's a it's an intriguing watch. It's long, but it's it's an it's not unearned. 
Yeah. No, I actually, I mean, this is heartbreaking and it's pretty much just rip out your heart and stomp on it. <laughs> like, yeah, it's brutal. Horrible, horrible. But this is one of those cases where I was almost like, I want like a better production value. Like, like could this case be featured in an Unsolved Mysteries reboot? Like, I want, there's enough yeah. twists and turns that would th- make, this one case would make for a really good, like longer format uh net you know netflix doc or whatever i'm sure there's more evidence if you looked into it deeper that either could you know give you a little bit of doubt or yeah. perhaps yeah i want more well, background on donnie like he didn't live there all the time he was just visiting like what was he doing like i there's yeah. there's gotta be more here also they were i didn't write this down because it didn't seem relevant to me but they're actually half siblings and so I almost wonder if there's some sort of animosity. Sure. I want to explore in that. The, in the marriage. You know what I mean? Yeah, there could like be. I, what was their relationship like? The, the family? Right. Like, I, I want to know all that information. Like, I want, this could really be more. I could use more on this one. Yeah. It's, it's, a, it's an interesting case. It's just very sad. Yeah, super sad. Poor, poor Jill and Julie deserved better. Yeah, they really did. Well, speaking of sad, this one made me cry. This one. So here we go. So this is a lost love. We are looking for the birth father of German-born Christoph Bauer. Um, So Christoph Bauer is looking for his father, Michael Seymour, who is from Canada. In the summer of 1955, Maria Hoffman, a 20-year-old exchange student from Germany, found work at the Hotel Moraine near Chicago, Illinois. She had spent the past year studying in the United States. Uh, she needed money for her return trip to Germany, which is why she took this job. One day, she ran into Michael, who was also in his early 20s. They began a summer romance. I mean, this dude was pretty handsome. He was extremely handsome. I'm looking at a picture of him right now. That hair? Man. And the, the reenactor they get to play him actually looks a lot like him. Yeah. Yeah. So I was like, yeah, this was like a destined to be a summer romance. Like, how could she resist? Of course, oh, definitely. <laughs> and it was. They had this whirlwind summer romance where they fell in love. Um, and she kept this romance a secret for nearly 30 years until the spring of 1983. So after uh, this summer, she returned to Germany, married. Um, she became a mother and then a grandmother. Her eldest son, Christoph, who was in the Air Force, was visiting, and she made a stunning confession that the man who raised him was not his real father. This, of course, shocked him. Um, Do you know I, how old he was at this time that he learned this? I don't, but he had three kids at this point. Oh, so he's, like, grown, grown. Yeah, he was yeah. Def- definitely a, a grown man. Um, so, of course, at this point in his life, to find this <laughs> out like, is completely <laughs> shocking. You me? Yeah. Yeah. And he's, he wants to know about his father. He says, I believe I, you know, in the reenactment, he says, I think, I feel like I deserve to know. So she explained that during the summer of 1955, she and Michael had fallen in love. However, the affair became serious when she discovered that she was pregnant. She was afraid because she was in a foreign country. She had very little money. Also, she knew that Michael did not make much income either. In October of 1955, she made the difficult decision to return to Germany with her baby. Um, Her family was there. She knew that she would have their support. 
Um, it was just going to be a, a better, more stable place to raise her child. It was, you know, she was already planning to return to Germany anyway. Um, I think she yeah. was saving for it. So it was a hard choice because she loved, she loved Michael, but she knew that she had to go. But she also has only known him a few months. Yeah. Like, she loves him, but is she going to completely, like, derail her whole life just for him? Right, and it was going to be a really hard life, you know, to support a baby on their meager income. She knows that she would have more support in Germany, and she would have her family there. So, yeah, I mean, it probably was the right decision, but it was definitely hard and heartbreaking. Yeah. So they planned to get together after Christoph was born. However, she never saw him again. Uh, Christoph was born in Germany on May 22nd, 1956. Shortly after, Maria married a college professor who would become Christoph's stepfather and who he believed was his real father. Uh, Fast forward to adult Christoph finding out that he has a different birth father out there somewhere. She gave Christoph four letters from his father. The last was written in 1958, and they included two photographs of, of Michael. This is what made me cry. These letters are so sweet. They're extremely sweet. He seems like a really nice man, and he really, really did love her. So he wrote uh, to the uh, return addresses on the envelope. Christoph wrote to the return addresses on the envelope, but received no response. Um, I'm trying. I didn't write down what he said in his letters, but they were really sweet. He talked about how Christoph was the cutest baby he'd ever seen, and how um, I think he said something along the lines of how even if they don't like continue in a relationship, he is just happy to be con- like connected to Maria yeah. for the rest of her life through this baby. It was very romantic and yes, very sweet. And he was, he was like, I would really like to be involved in Kristoff's life somehow. Like you're both so important to me. I don't know. There's a, we, we've seen a lot of dudes being fuck boys causing all sorts of trouble on this show and this i'm gonna give this man credit for actually being just a romantic sweetheart who seemed very you know loyal and heartfelt and nice yep yeah and he to his credit he continued to try and stay not in touch necessarily but he he tried to stay like connected to christoph in a way so he um Government agencies in Canada and the United States had no records of Michael. And also the Hotel Moraine burned to the ground, so there wasn't any like, information there. <laughs> oh, However, Chicago. Maria's cousin, who lived in Chicago, had received several phone calls from Michael over the years. Um, and he would call and just check up and ask how Kristoff was doing. Um, he called Maria for was 20 doing. years. Yeah. He called for 20 years to see how he was doing. That's unbelievable to me. It is unbelievable. He never, he never met. He had only seen like two pictures of. Yeah. Oh, oh, so sweet. I know. So the call, yeah, like you said, the calls continued for at least 20 years. He often asked about Maria and Christoph. Unfortunately, in 1976, Maria's cousin moved. um, And that was the last time anyone had contact with Michael. Sadly, (sighs) In Couldn't my- leave a forwarding number. Couldn't let him know. Jeez. At, at this point, you've had this relationship with this person for 20 years where you get these phone calls and update him on his son. And yeah, you couldn't just be like, hey, I'm moving. I'm moving. Here's my new number. <laughs> wow. Like, goddamn. 
Maybe it had been a while since his last call or something. Yeah, I guess. I mean, you can lose touch, especially, but you know, you can't just look these yeah. people up on Facebook at that point. <laughs> so if you lose their number or whatever, I mean, you're kind of SOL. So um, just sad. the loyalty of calling for 20 years. Not yeah. even the woman he loved. The woman he loves cousin. Just to be like, so how are they? Ah! I know. I know. Sadly, in 1984, Maria passed away at the age of 49. Today, Christoph is a captain in the German Air Force. Since 1991, he has lived with his family in the United States. He, and he At this point, um, when this aired, he had hoped to be reunited with his father. They were planning on moving back to Germany, um, and he was kind of hoping that he would be able to connect with him before they moved. Unfortunately... This is unsolved. Um, Michael's family was located in Canada, but he's still not been found. Christoph was surprised to learn that the name Michael Seymour was actually an alias. His real name was Walter Joseph Anthony Seymour. He was born on October 30th, 1930 um, in Pembroke, Ontario. Uh, He lived in Evanston, Illinois, until at least 1970. He also used the names Michael B. Samore and Walter uh, hmm. Stokwa. Um, if he's still alive, he would now be 89. Why do you think he needed so many names? I don't know. See, this is very mysterious. Why was he going around giving aliases? I mean, it explains why he's so, so nice. He's from Canada, so that part makes sense. <laughs> but what is he up to? Yeah, I, you gotta wonder. I wish other, I knew. Other than falling desperately in love with German women who work at hotels, what else is he up to? I wish I knew. I like maybe he was a spy or something. I got. I want there to be a romantic story, but wow. unfortunately, we have no information. And Santa? it's got to be so hard for Kristoff to find out that his father never forgot about him for twenty years, and yet they were never able, at least as far as I know, never able to connect. I mean, I hope. I don't know exactly what he was looking for in his search, but. Maybe there's some satisfaction in knowing that his father was a nice dude. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, and I think he does describe in the episode that he felt like his father really cared about him. You know, he wasn't, he didn't abandon him and forget about him. So there probably is some satisfaction there, but it's just really unfortunate that, yeah, they never got to know each other. Yeah, I know. What a bummer. All right, so that is actually the end of that bummer of an episode. <sighs> yeah, well, you should probably rate it. It's time to rate things. Let's go. So what's first? Mysteriousness. Actually, kind of mysterious, because I want to know why this guy had multiple names. I want to know, did that guy fake his own kidnapping or not? I'm I actually kind of leaning towards he faked it. And and he just, like, hired someone to pretend to kidnap him from that parking lot. And that's why things were so zany. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then, okay, I might personally think that Donnie did it. But who helped him? And what was his goal? Was it just for money? There's Such still a, a lot of questions. That's a mysterious case. I think thumbs way up. Yeah, this was a very mysterious episode. Uh, reenactments? fine i the the fumbles 2.0 is pretty funny reenactments um i actually feel like the ones from my mystery were pretty well done not like spectacular i guess but adequate um eh, sideways i guess what do you think yeah i'm i'm whatever about them i think they were fine 
Okay. So I'm, I'm okay with sideways. Fashion. Uh, do you like Inspector Gadget outfits? <laughs> do you like handsome Canadians working at hotels? Is that fashion? Uh, I don't. Yeah, again, unremarkable, I feel like. Yeah. I Nothing stands out for me. It's Thumbs fine. down. Thumbs down. And Robert Stack? Um, I for I think for the fat phobia, thumbs down. Yeah, that's what I was gonna say. I'm I'm not the really thi- digging it, Stack. The things I remember about him in this episode, I'm not liking. So, yeah, bump, 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 bump. not a big fan. Thumbs down. Okay, how are we gonna rate this one? So it's a scale of one to five. Robert Stacks. Obviously, more Robert Stacks equals better. So five is the best possible, but this is not a five. It's not a five, but I will say, especially your mystery did really suck me in. As sad as it is, it's and it's extremely sad. I think the mystery itself is actually, this is the first time in a while where yeah. I've been like engrossed in the twists and turns of the mystery, which is my favorite part about mysteries, obviously, the mysterious part of them. So I do think <laughs> that was good. I don't know, though. Is this a four? Is this a 3.5? I don't, it, a four feels too high to me. I agree. I feel like it's, it's a reaction. It's a three wearing a rain hat. It's a it's <laughs> it's a three and a little bit. I I agree. It's a three and a smidge. A little, yeah. a little smidge more than it's a, a three. it's better than a three, but I don't. It's not a four. It's no, and I don't even sure it's a three point five. <laughs> but I was I was thinking the other day. Maybe you have this phenomenon too. But when I rate books on Goodreads. The gap between a three and a four is huge. Like, it's disproportionately big, I feel like. Like, five, I'm saving, obviously, for, like, best book I've ever read, right? Right. So, so that's, like, oh, this book's perfection. So, four is still, like, pretty darn good. Similarly, the gap between three and two, I feel like, is the same, but in the opposite direction. Do you feel like... I feel like there's a bigger gap in between a three, a, a, a four is like, oh, this is actually really pretty good. And a three is kind of like, eh. That's true. <laughs> like, and I end up giving a lot of threes. And because Goodreads won't fucking give us half, I know, half it's ratings, hard. it's really hard because I feel like if I'm going to give something a 3.5, I need to round up and give it a four. Exactly. But four is like, but it's not and a And you're four. like, this is not a four book. Right. Do I take yeah. this way too seriously? I have that yes. same problem. <laughs> yes, I do. Yes, I do. I think about it long and hard. Do I take things I should take seriously and not seriously at all? Yes, I have issues. But I do put a lot of thought into how I rate books on Goodreads. Basically, the whole time I'm reading them. Oh, is this going to be a four? I was just thinking, like, a three. Sometimes a three is just like, eh, whatever. This was fine. Yeah. I feel that way about this episode a little. But it's, it's better than fine, I'm though. giving it, like, a 3.25. Eh, <laughs> it would be nice on Goodreads, and perhaps we could have done this on our show, to give things a, like, letter rating. So you could be like, this is okay. really a C plus, you yeah. know? Yeah, yeah. Because I would say this episode was a B minus. I totally agree. But we don't. Well, we didn't do it. That's, that's not how we did it. So. <laughs> Sucks to be us, I guess. Okay. It's now recommendation time how we close off the show yeah and i got a quick think of one so you better go <laughs> getting <laughs> you first well i was gonna say that i don't really have one 
I thought about it this morning and decided that in honor of it being Valentine's Day that I was just going to remind you to treat yourself well. Hmm. And perhaps be inspired by a reclusive corset maker (laughs) that we've previously talked about on the show. Yes. It's a pandemic. It's February. Cut yourself some slack. Be extra nice to yourself. If, if, your friend was going through a hard time. Hopefully you wouldn't just be like, well, other people have it worse. <laughs> right? Which is right. what you might say to yourself. But hopefully you would say to your friend, you would do something nice for them. You would try to cheer them up. That's what you should do to yourself. You shouldn't just be like, well, it could be worse. No. Treat yourself nice. Have chocolate for breakfast. Um, what I've been doing is spraying perfume in my bed before I go to sleep. Amazing. Oh, luxurious. That is what the corset maker would want you to do. Yes. that's what, You just need like a little luxury to make this time a little bit less unpleasant. So maybe uh, check out some poetry from the library. And if you hate it, oh, well, you can just give it back. It'll be fine. <laughs> um, don't save things for special occasions. You know, like you do them now. And my, an example of that is my family used to do this picnic. We would call it the Von Snoot family picnic. This is a great suggestion for when it gets warm, warmer out. We would get dressed up. We would wrap up the china, pack up a picnic lunch, go to the park, set out like a tablecloth and candles and shit, and eat our picnic off china and pretend we were rich. <laughs> this is amazing. <laughs> and, to, and, and to be like, oh, could you pass the olives? <laughs> The Van Snoot family picnic. It's really fun, actually. When so pandemic, we need to have a Van Snoot family absolutely. picnic. Absolutely. I want to do this. But it, don't be like people in like my grandparents' generation that were always like saving stuff for some special occasion that was never going to come. Like, we can't use this nice dish. Why? Is the queen coming someday? No. <laughs> Just use it now. Do you do all that stuff now? Treat yourself well during the pandemic. Spray some perfume in the bed. Yeah. Have hot chocolate. I don't know. Just a little just a little extra luxury. That's what we all need right now. That's a really great recommendation. It's kind of not a recommendation at all. Add but some luxury to your life. Yeah. I mean, it's... I'm, Valentine's Day. You can be I'm, your own Valentine. Exactly. Yeah. Just give yourself what you want. It's okay. Now this is just turning into a self-help motivational show. <laughs> I'm fine with it. That's cool. Okay, I think I did think of something to recommend because awesome. you reminded me that I've been buying a lot of shit for myself lately. <laughs> and, and you and you deserve it, Samantha. It's something I bought. I was influenced by an Instagram ad. It happens from time to time. Um, and we I all bought have our this weaknesses. Coffee mug that I want to recommend. Uh huh. Yeah. Anyway, I have this problem where, and it's a very ridiculous problem i acknowledge but i have to drink my coffee like piping hot i don't like it if it like gets a little lukewarm even just a little bit i really like it to be okay. hot so what i started to what i did a couple years ago is i bought one of those yeti um tumbler oh, sure. mugs mm-hmm. with the, the handle like the low ball mm-hmm. and i've been using it for a long time and it works fine except this is such a ridiculous complaint but it's really heavy and it's like not a good shape it's like weirdly wide and low and it's kind of uncomfortable to use so on 
But you it's know, kind of made for like giant lumberjack hands. It kind of is. Well, you have. I'm like picturing your like little petite hands holding this like massive like soup bowl mug. Like it kind ugh. of is a soup bowl mug, and I use it because it does keep my drinks extremely hot. I'm not even sure they make this one anymore because the, I've tried to look it up to compare the price to what I'm going to recommend to you. And I couldn't find the one that I have. They have like a different version that's a little bit smaller. Maybe that one would be better. I don't know. But the one I have is just like not that practical. But it does keep my coffee extremely hot for a really long time. So like especially if you're working, you probably have this. I'm sure people listening have the same problem where you're working and you get into like an email or whatever and you forget your coffee sitting there and then it's like cold. Sure, so sure. that solved my problem. However, Instagram fed me this ad a couple weeks it ago. Knew. It knew, it knows all your weaknesses. Yes, it, it honestly it kind it does. The algorithm has me figured out. So it it I was served this ad on Instagram for this Tumblr company that it's the brand vibe from this Tumblr company is like not my thing. It's a little girl boss for my taste, but uh, I was immediately it, it served me an ad for this like travel mug that was leopard print. So it has my number. I looked it up. It's called Swig Life, which kind of gives you the idea of the... Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Sure. Ridiculous. Ridiculous. However... Oh, oh Samantha, just live in the swig life. <laughs> I know. It's really silly. However, I received the mug in the mail last week. I've been using it for a week, and I actually really like it to the point where I'm probably going to buy some as gifts because... There's a few things about it that make it perfect. So they have different designs. They have like the wine mug, which is like, of course they do, the little wine tumbler. They have the uh-huh. bigger tumbler. And then the one I got was like the middle size that has a handle. And things I like about it are it keep, does keep my drink hot just to the that same degree that the Yeti does. It's a little bit lighter weight. It's still heavy because it's like the double walled thing. Like I don't think you can get away from that. Um, so it's a little, it is still heavy, but it's lighter than the Yeti. So I like that. Um, it's tapered at the bottom so it fits in the cup holder, which was another complaint mm-hmm. that I had about mm-hmm. my Yeti. Back sure. when I used to commute, I couldn't really put it, I had to like put it on the seat next to me, it'd always follow, you know. Um, and it, yeah, it does keep my drink really, really hot. And also, unlike the Yeti, it has a closable top, so it doesn't always stay open, so you can ah. actually like pop it closed. Um, it has like a little rubber grippy part on the bottom too, so it's not gonna like I'm super clumsy and knock I knock things over all the time. So all of these features make it like actually a pretty appealing mug to me, and they have a ton of really pretty prints. Like I'm scrolling through. Unfortunately, the mug I got in the size I got with the leopard print is sold out, but it does say that it's gonna be back in stock February nineteenth, I guess. Um, but there's also like a rainbow leopard print. There's a marble one, a tie dye. There's some really pretty floral prints. They're kind of expensive, but with how much I use mine, I think it's worth it. And I kind of wish, like, I could trade in my two Yetis for just (laughs) a couple more of these. Because I'm definitely going to use this way more than that one now. Um, So I do do recommend this if you're in the same boat. There, for a while, I was seeing that coffee mug that you, like, connect to your smartphone. And it will, like, keep your drink warm. (laughs) Yeah. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Which could absolutely never justify that because they're so expensive and i feel like it's one of those things where you would get it and it like wouldn't fucking work but i always saw that and was like if i was rich (laughs) when i get that bling empire money man man. i'm gonna get this smartphone enabled fucking coffee mug first purchase yeah oh yeah the first purchase would be a capybara the second purchase would be a smartphone enabled (laughs) coffee mug 
swig life. I can't even believe I'm recommending this. I almost wasn't going to because it sounds so silly. But this is like, yeah. You've overcome their branding to believe in their product. The product is actually really good. It works really nice. I like the mug. It's cute. Are you going to throw away all your just regular ceramic mugs now? You're like, I don't need this. Goodbye. I like a ceramic. Okay. Back when we could shop at Marshall's and Home Goods, I could barely call, leave that store without a cute mug. Uh, <laughs> definitely not. Keeping those forever. Love having those around. Okay. Good. 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 But I don't I ever mean, use them. <laughs> That's not true. If I if I drink tea or hot chocolate, I'll reach for one of those because I'll usually drink it pretty fast. Like, but when I'm working, I forget to. I want to like sip it over a long period of time, so I want it to stay hot. I'm actually drinking out of a perhaps it's you mug right now, nice. which you can get from our Teespring store. <laughs> it will not keep anything hot, but it does come in two different shades of pink. So you got to think about what's more important. You got to have priorities. Yeah, so head over to perhapsitsyou.com to see our merch options. Get you one of those. Not brought to you by Swig Life. Yeah. <laughs> I also feel like I should mention that people can still get our zine, our fabulous Ooh, zine, for $15. That amazing. Shipped to the USA. Don't you want a recipe for mac and cheesies and all sorts of fan art and good stuff? Don't you want a pull-out poster of me and Samantha looking at Matthew McConaughey holding a capybara? <laughs> Yeah, you do. <laughs> if you didn't know you wanted that, you do now. Yeah, that's in our zine. All right. Uh, this is the end of the show now. Where you're only told you go to our website, perhaps it's you.com. Yeah, there's social media. You can see me make many memes about the deadly power of my beautiful voice. <laughs> uh, you know, we have a couple of Facebook groups. About One about Animal Crossing. One about reading books. Yep. One about this show apparently um if you wanted to email us a paranormal tale or perhaps a psychic dream that would be perhaps it's you podcast at gmail.com send those our way if you've got a few extra dollars burning a hole in your pocket you can get some bonus content by subscribing to our patreon it's patreon.com slash perhaps it's you we should probably record february's episode i think we're going to do oh, yeah. a paranormal home inspector paranormal home inspectors very yeah, excited maybe, about that maybe part of treating yourself well is signing up for a new patreon yeah. that sounds like the real luxurious life you'll get over 30 episodes and that's only a dollar a month so it's a great deal but there's a, there's higher tiers though if you want to get some cool shit you can uh you can give us a little more money and you'll get some some cool shit like a coloring your, sheet every month. Is your life depressingly sticker-free? Well, cough up $5. We can fix that problem for you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. Where are the stickers? My brother was once, like, in a very serious voice, told the family that his body was dangerously low in bubble tea. And then we were just like, <laughs> all right, we'll go. We got to the gotta solve that problem. We got to solve this problem. Dangerously low. If you're dangerously low in stickers, you can help I am out. also dangerously low in bubble tea. I am. I am too. My body is depleted. <sighs> Do we have anything else we need to say? Uh, I, don't, I don't know. Did we mention our social media? Yeah, I think we did. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. There we go. Okay. That's, that's all we got to talk about. So uh, keep barking, everyone. And my voice and Samantha's voice will be back to kill you next <laughs> week. Bye. Yes. Bye.